Good morning, everyone. Good morning. <laughs> hey, Joseph. So for today's Theology 101, as I mentioned, it's just kind of going to be a free form. Um, and I just wanted to start by asking any thoughts or questions about the homily or about the, the book that I mentioned. It's a wonderful book. The Joy to Serve by uh, Matushka Juliana Shmemen. That's about service in the church. A lot of things about being a presbytera, about being a matushka, but also about women serving in the church, about um, how to be a counselor to people. It's a very good book, yeah. So, but that was the chapter. I don't know. Yeah, perhaps. But I don't know, yeah. So you guys have any questions to stump me with? Any burning thoughts that have been in your head? Yes? Bring you these interesting stories in the uh, bulletin about early, what happened to the early Christians and so on. Uh huh. Very early. Uh, you mean like on the front page of a bulletin? Yeah. I would say one of the best resources, you'd have to know who you're looking for. So if you just want to look for, say, an apostle and find out what happened to them after what was written in the Bible. Um, the best thing that I've found online is OCA.org. OCA stands for Orthodox Church in America.org. The uh, GoArch.org website, which is for our own archdiocese, they also have Lives of the Saints, but they're not quite as long. So um, if you really want to dig deeper into a particular life, there are thick books called Synexaria. And these books you can get at the bookstore. Uh, you can get them so that one month is this many, another month. So they're all organized by the date of commemoration. That's why it's helpful online to go and type in a saint's name. You find out the date they're commemorated, then you can look in one of these big books. And um, those, you know, some saints have like 15 pages of their life or longer. So you can learn a great deal about their lives. Um, like St. Mary Magdalene, who um, lived and uh, is also called equal to the apostles. She was an apostle going out and evangelizing throughout the Roman world and eventually actually spoke before the, the emperor of the Roman Empire. So um, that's probably the best starting point is OCA.org. But you do kind of have to look for a particular name. Um, but what I would say then also is if you're just wanting to know of some saints, you're talking about people who are actually named in the Bible or after that as well? Yeah, after that as well. Like early church history. Yeah, so for early church history, I can give some recommendations of specific names of saints. Um, but if you want to actually read the text, the Apostolic Fathers, you can get this in most bookstores like Powell's. If you look up the Apostolic Fathers, so the way it works is chronologically there's the time of Christ then of the apostles then the apostolic fathers are the very first ones they are the disciples of the apostles and so those include Polycarp Bishop of Smyrna Justin Martyr uh, Irenaeus of Lyon a number of them but if you look up the apostolic fathers as a book you can also find it online as well uh, that's their actual writing so you'll have like the epistle of St. Polycarp to the Romans 
or the epistle of this person to, you know. Um, so that's also a wonderful source as well to actually see the original text. And the amazing thing to see is that in the first century, in the second century, all of the things that we have of the church, their core is there already. The way that they describe this, the liturgy, it's like you could be sitting in our church, and it's of course it's in skeleton form. They don't say every, they don't talk about what is said, but they say the actions that occur, and it's exactly what we do to this day. It's pretty pretty amazing to see that. Yeah, good question. Yeah, so if you get a book called the Apostolic Fathers, usually it will have the Didache as well, which is another. It's also called the Teachings of the Apostles. So, uh, or the Apostolic Canons, but that's usually in. If you just get a book called Apos the Apostolic Fathers, it'll have that as well. Uh, the Letter to Homogenes. There are a number of others that are from that time. Clement, Pope of Rome. So, yeah, very good question. So the question, once again, was how to find out more about the early, early church and especially the saints of the early church. So, any other questions? Yeah. Is there any, any kind of book or any kind of help out there for teens and what they're facing So the question is about resources for teens as they face the society and all the conflicts that they'll be facing in society. Um, I hesitate to mention specific things because there aren't a lot of resources out there, I'll be honest with you, but it really, it really depends on the teen. I would be more inclined to say for you as a parent, resources for you, because parents generally all have the exact same concerns about their kids. But the kids, some of them might be, you know, still interested in going to church. Some of them might not be. Some of them might be um, very much against what the church is teaching. And so, in which, you know, which book is the one that is the shoe that fits for them, you know. So... So, yeah, about uh, finding out what the church's position on particular issues, um, there are books for that, but not specifically geared towards teens. Um, books on orthodox ethics and bioethics. Um, and again, I could I'd probably want to go to the bookstore and, and point out certain books. Um, uh, Metropolitan Hierotheos Vlachos from, um, uh, from Greece. Uh, he would be a good resource. Uh, he's written a number of books. Um, there was a recent book that just came out about um, the ill effects of TVs and the internet and screens, and that was by um, uh, Jean-Claude Larcher, and that's in our bookstore as well. Um, what was the last word you said, screens? Yeah, about... TV screens and about the internet and all of the, the it really going in depth into the spiritual impact of all of this. And it's startling, and that's not just for our teenagers, that's for us here. <laughs> so uh, that is a very good book. Um, yeah, there are other resources as well. Um, Father Anthony Coniaris uh, wrote a few, or actually, um, and also um, Father Stanley Herricus wrote books on orthodox ethics. 
but those weren't up to the recent times. Those were maybe 20 years ago or so, so some of the very recent issues. The church is still formulating on some of the very recent issues. So, and that's where I'm, I'm trying to communicate some of those in the setting of Theology 101. So um, I have spoken in Theology 101 about homosexuality and also about gender. So those are available to the parish. Um, actually, the homosexuality, I don't think that was recorded. So, um, but the one that I recently did on, on gender is recorded. So that's available to the parish, not to disseminate to the world, but for our parishioners. So... Any other questions? Yes. So you're asking the question is about people who are born with some sort of um, incomplete or abnormal. Um, uh, uh, sexual organs. And um, yeah, those situations are extremely rare and those would be dealt with in a one-on-one -on -one basis pastorally. Yeah, it's not really, it can be like this um, obscure example that somehow is supposed to change the vast majority of situations and that simply can't be the case. So, yeah. Yeah. Question, yeah. Anything. Yeah. <clears throat> when I'm trying to read in scriptures and, and just find general information to better my life and stuff, um, I feel like most of what is happening in scriptures and the times is taking a, a kind of an Eastern way of looking at things. Um, to do first, then understand, instead of a Western way that we do it, the way that we're just doing it now. Try to understand it first and then do it. Is hmm. that fair to say? And you're saying that as a, a in what what is your direction with that? <laughs> to, to understand, yeah. How to best explain some of the things that I'm that I come to know and understand people who are new to the church or who are looking into the church. Because when they say, you know, how am I supposed to look at this? What am I supposed to think when I see all these teachings and stuff? Yeah. What am I supposed to do with fasting? Yeah. A lot of it seems like they're encouraging people just to try it and do it first and then understand a little bit more of it. Mm -hmm. So the question is about uh, a possible distinction between the East and the West of, in the East, more of doing it and then understanding through that, and the West, more of understanding and then doing it in terms of the spiritual life. Um, I would hesitate with drawing too much of a distinction in that way because I can't think of an area of our spiritual life where I couldn't give exhaustive bibliographies about... The, the matter. So um, I'm not sure what precisely are the areas where uh, a person might be guided to do it and then understand. Um, that said, in a pastoral setting, in a one-on-one -on -one setting with a person, sometimes it is uh, important and necessary that the person just make that leap of faith and try something. I think of this especially when, in terms of people coming into the faith and the, the whole issue of the Theotokos, of the Panagia, where um, a lot of it is just 
to say the prayers. Don't be, don't allow that to become a stumbling block. And over time, because it is relational, because this is a, a far distant relative that you've never gotten to know, and so like. Imagine literally that you have a distant relative you've never gotten to know and you go out to coffee. It's like, what are we going to talk about? We're going to catch up on all the small talk, but with saints you don't do small talk. So what's left, you know? You just have to keep on working at it. So that is a truism within the spiritual life. I would say anywhere that the West feels like that is a, a bad thing, I would strongly disagree. Because in fact, the indicator of what a person's readiness to enter the church is their experience. As far as people knowing the information, that all happens in time. Some people walk into the door of the church having way more information than most of the people in the parish, having read through two dozen books. So, but that's like a drop in the bucket for actually being ready to be received into the church and enter the church. So that's where the experiential aspect is, um, is I'll say flatly, is more important. And if we're not sure about that, just look at like recent saints like St. Silouan. He was illiterate. And you can read his writings, although I don't know if he wrote them. I think it was Saint Sophroni, or Elder Sophroni that wrote them all down. But they are immensely theologically deep. And he was totally illiterate, totally uneducated. So that isn't to say that we should, again, go to this other extreme and say, you don't need to learn anything. So we have to be careful of the extremes. But to just simply recognize, ultimately, it is God's grace that is giving understanding. It is not the number of words I read. It is not. And that's the pride that we can have in, oh, I've read this, therefore I understand it. So, and that's something we have to reject. Yeah. 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 Lisa. Yeah. Yeah. And there would be um, a number of Protestant denominations that would say that infant shouldn't be baptized because they don't understand. And what we would say is, you don't understand what baptism is. Baptism is a free gift of grace by God. Who deserves it? Everyone. Yeah. So, uh, Lois first, and then Joanna. Uh, a little example. I was at the monastery yesterday. Mm -hmm. Of course, in the service, Greek, and I don't kind of yeah. got in the middle of it. Got the Kyrie eleison, and that's about it. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Just yeah. Go ahead. When I said, well, one time in the pre-communion prayers, and they said, oh, stop. And I said, well, I don't understand Greek anyway, but I'll, you know, I was kind of being like hard, like, what time in the prayers? Well, I'm going to go, but I don't understand them. She said, your soul understands. Like, <laughs> 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 it really helps so, me. Yeah. It's like, this part of me can't understand. That, like, blew my mind, so I was like, no, and, and what she's saying is literal. It's not like, oh, this is a nice symbolism. Literally, our soul understands. Now, is that an argument for keeping languages obscure? Of course not. Of 
course not. But when we're in settings where the language is obscure to us, that doesn't hinder the Holy Spirit. Not at all. It can hinder, it, we can actually hinder the Holy Spirit because we can go into those settings and be like, what is it all in Greek? Or whatever language. And then we're blocking off the grace of the Holy Spirit from our own soul. So, you want to know what we're going to say? And there is a certain, I don't know if I want to use the language like a paradigm shift, but there is a sense within our modern world of we must understand. And, and again, I don't want to make absolutes of like the position of your grandmother is better, but what I will say is in that position there's humility and obedience, and those are pretty important for the spiritual life. So you're starting with those two right from the outset. Um, but uh, is it worthwhile to know and understand? Yeah, it can be very worthwhile. So, uh, yeah. What do you mean to speak to that? Can you speak up? Okay. Oh, yeah. So, like, Sarah's the eye. Like, she grew up Orthodox, you know, Greek Orthodox her whole life. And it, when we started coming to the church, that's when she started wanting to know what she believed. And she was so I mean there can be that yeah. and, but I learned so much of humility from her because there is time to, we weren't baptized yet but I was making coffee and I was like yeah I just want some coffee she's like no I don't want to eat I don't know what that was you know what I mean yeah. so there's things I learned but so yeah. there, it was so late in life that she wanted to know but she yeah. let a whole life yeah, and with, with all of these things, so many things in our spiritual life, it's a dichotomy that we really don't want to take extremes on because we go in extremes of knowledge, 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 and then the devil can cause us pride. We go in extremes of don't learn, don't learn, don't learn, just try to immerse yourself, immerse yourself, and in that we can also go into peril. So many things in our spiritual life are like that where we really just need to find that balance of for ourselves where we're at. Being aware that these are all spiritual issues. It's not an issue of knowledge. It's a, a spiritual issue. Is what I'm reading causing in me pride? Is what I'm reading causing me a greater communion with God? Is it causing this? Is it causing that? So that's what we have to be aware of. That's far more important than the words that we're reading. So, you know. Other questions? Yeah. Okay. My wife knows how much I like to talk about myself. <laughs> um, so the question was about my walk to orthodoxy. So I was, I was young in it. I was right at the cusp where I was an adolescent, but I wasn't living independently. Um, and my, our exposure to orthodoxy, so my dad was a Lutheran pastor. When I was in, um, going into third grade, he left the ministry because he was so frustrated with the Lutheran church. Um, and so just found a job. And so uh, we drifted between different churches for about 
five years or so. We went to a Lutheran church for a while, an Episcopal church. We tried Roman Catholic, but it was just too weird for us. And then we, uh, by God's grace, we had a one-month exchange student, a French guy, and we said, oh, we like this exchange student thing. Let's go for a whole year. So we got an exchange student from Russia who was totally non-religious. Um, but at some point in the year, we said, hey, we know of this Russian church in San Francisco. We should bring him to his church, you know, because he'll appreciate that, right? He's been gone from his culture for so long. So we brought him to the cathedral where he wasn't St. John at the time, but where the relics of uh, John Maximovich were, Archbishop John. And that was just the turning point there. My parents went into the bookstore. They got Becoming Orthodox by Father Peter Gilquist. And so we, me and my brothers just basically went along the ride with our parents. We could have revolted because we were teenagers by then, but we didn't. So, um, yeah, that's pretty much it. So, what era? Uh, like the 90s, early 90s? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, what do we call that era? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> the 90s, yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh, his, he actually left in the late 80s. Late 80s. Yeah, it was a lot of stuff that was going on. He saw the writing on the wall long before things went really wacky. Yeah. So uh, yeah, the late 80s. So I was wearing hypercolor then. So I remember that. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, because, you know what, a lot of it was conversation with my parents and just seeing the connection. The, the thing that uh, always drew me, and I think probably my parents the most, for many different aspects of orthodoxy. Some people, they want, you know, the all of the guidance and, you know, we have everything very rigid in that sense. Other people want it because they hate where they're at. Other people, for us, it was really that aspect of being the seamless connection with the church that Christ founded. So that's pretty hard to argue. It doesn't matter how weird everything is around you. If this is the church that was founded by Christ and his apostles, this is it. So, so that's where other things took time. And like, like with the Theotokos, that took time for me. I'd still say the prayers, but I didn't really have a warmth. So, yeah. Other questions? And from that to your priesthood. What? And from that to your priesthood. Ah, one second. I'll, I'll go to that. Yes. Didn't know this was going to be a quizzing me. Yeah. When you went backpacking in Europe, you went to see. Oh yeah. So yeah, we we had already become Orthodox then, and we did one of those backpacking through Europe, me and my brothers, and we went to the monastery in Essex where Elder Sophroni was, um, and that was also uh, influential as well. So learning how to make komboskini. <laughs> Yeah. So, yeah, the journey to the priesthood was quite a bit longer. Um, I went to college, graduated, got married, uh, worked one career, worked another career, and then I was in San Jose in 2006 and started um, started uh, attending St. Basil there where Father Gregory Koo is the priest. He's now at the Life-Giving Spring at the monastery down where St. Nicholas Ranch is. Um, and just got involved in the church there. They had one chanter, and she was pregnant with her second, I think. And 
she said, I can't chant anymore. Can you do this? I was helping out a little bit, and so then I just got immersed into the chanting and then uh, helping in the altar and just realizing more and more that that's where, where the joy was. So, But a lot of it was the example of Father Gregory as the priest. So he's a very, very holy man. So, yeah. Yeah, that's it in a nutshell. Any non-Father Matthew questions? <laughs> Anything else? You guys are all theologically perfect. Everything's good, huh? <laughs> well, I can... Oh, did you have a question? No. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And so that phrase, life giver, kind of... Yeah. And all women and men can be life givers. So... Can you yeah. So, um, yeah, the question is about that term life giver. And interestingly, that's one of the names of the Theotokos, as we call it, the Theotokos, the life giving spring. That's the name of the monastery in Dunlap, in California. Um, and so. That aspect of life-giving, and I didn't really, I was trying really to focus on women, even though there was a temptation. So many of the things are also spiritually true for men. But I really wanted to point out the distinction, because we have to understand fundamentally there is a big distinction between men and women. There is. So that's what I wanted to focus on. And that term life-giver, that was uh, Matushka Juliana's term. And I think it's really poignant, because very obviously, Many women become life givers in giving birth to children. But she drew that out into the broader sense of how, um, how to bring life to people. And what she mentioned in one of the quotes was, um, This is motherhood, to give life to those who have lost it, making life appear as the greatest gift, even through suffering, loss, despair, and death. So in light of that, thinking about how... Uh, I'll, I hope I'm not being offensive with this. Women's unique ability to console. So men have many strengths, but consoling doesn't come naturally. There are men out there that are, I can make all the caveats in the world, you know, there are men that are able to do this in situations where all of us, all of us are called to console. But there's a unique capacity among women, and that really comes out of empathy, compassion. Because you can't really console someone unless you can really feel what they're going through. And then that circles back to motherhood, because, you know, going back to the Panagia, a sword will pierce your own heart that the way that a mother feels the pain of her children is um, hard to describe, but it's profoundly deep. And so how does that extend to all people? That's the, the life-giving aspect. Is I think it starts from that um, compassion and empathy and then into consoling. So because that, that is what gives life to someone who is feeling a lack of life, whether it's suffering or despair or even thoughts of death or all kinds of things. That's how you're bringing life. So, at least I think that's how she was describing it. And I would agree with that. That's why I was quoting it. <laughs> so, yeah, very good question. So, I don't know that I'll be able to make a counterpoint talking about men on Father's Day. We'll see. <laughs> uh, so... 
because it's a little different because it's God. And yes, Jesus is a man, but Jesus is the example for all of us. So, But there's still truth in there. You know, in the passage in Ephesians about, uh, he's talking about husband and wife, and then he says, but I speak of Christ in the church. This is a great mystery, but I speak of Christ in the church. And we're used to that passage, so we kind of don't really think about that, but you're like, wait a second. So all this time where he, I thought he was talking about a husband and a wife, he then goes, this is a great mystery, but I talk of Christ in the church. Oh, so that's what he was actually talking about? Well, then how does that relate back to this? So there is an aspect of Christ's ministry and who Christ is that is more aligned with the gifts that God has given males. But we are all to follow Christ and emulate Christ. So, and Christ had, he's God. So he, in some sense, again, he has both. But we, we, we don't have to worry about like trying to fit it all into Christ because we've got the Panagia there as an example. So, yeah. yeah. Which being a topic for one day. Yeah, we'll see. But you brought it up, literally brought up about marriage and Christ first the church, about women and submitted. A lot of people take it, use that as an excuse to allow abuse, um, yeah. or confuse the role that a woman and a man have. Yeah. So all the confusions of male and female roles, specifically I think you're talking about in marriage. Yeah. Um, there's so many confusions, I couldn't begin to talk about all of them. Fundamentally, what we have to see is that in the example that St. Paul gives us, both of them are mutually self-emptying. So they're both self-emptying. That's the, the starting point. So what kind of marriage is mutually self-emptying? Very few of the marriages around us. Very few. So when we're talking about people who are not mutually self-emptying, well then, we're, of course, we're going to get into problems about how we interpret these passages. So they're mutually self-emptying, but then the other thing to notice is in different ways. They're not self-emptying in the same way. And that's what we see in the passage. Because again, if every time he says, husband, you put the word Christ, and every time he says wife, you put the word church, because that's what he's talking about, remember? Then it, it can all make more sense to us. But when we have the, the goggles on of husband and wife, and we have all the different baggage of our particular upbringing or this and that, it's really hard to get through. So that's why I would say with that passage, start at the end where it says, I speak of Christ in the church, and then bring that back to the beginning and work it all the way through. So, um, but all the problems come from not being mutually self-emptying. So there's an obedience on both sides, but it's different. So, yeah, that's a short answer. There's a lot more we could say about it. But I will say anyone who is advocating for their position from that passage is already flawed. Because how is their humility if you're advocating for a particular viewpoint? That's to your benefit. Now, if you're advocating for the other person, you're saying, spouse, you really need to, you know, but see, again, even that, it, it, it's very delicate. It's very delicate. And if we start with self-emptying, then we won't go wrong. So, yeah. Yeah, good questions. We've got, it's a, almost a quarter till when they're going to stop, but if you have a, another quick question or anything else... 
Um, well, let me just finish with these words. So next year for Theology 101, if you were here through it all and you remember us going all the way through the liturgy and we stopped right at the anaphora, which is the heart of the liturgy, I thought we would cram that in today and then I decided that's a bad idea. So instead what we'll do is Theology 101 next year we'll start going through the anaphora in the depth that it needs. because And then we can also do that with the St. Basil liturgy which has very different prayers. And so we'll actually be able to take a lot of time through that. Um, so yeah. But if you have any particular issues you want discussed you can always feel free to approach me and say can we talk about this in Theology 101? So... Okay, let's rise for prayer. Christ our God, we pray that the example of the holy murderers and the example of Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, that these may be for us guideposts in our path towards you and in our love towards those around us. For you are holy always, now and ever, and to ages of ages. Amen. Thank you, everyone.